Support the Amigos podcast and keep the Amiga goodness flowing for just a dollar a month. Visit our page at patreon.com slash Amigos podcast. Amiga, the first personal computer that gives you a creative edge. Amigos, the podcast about everything Amiga. Amigos is a proud member of the Throwback Network, your home for quality retro podcasts. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron Dowdy and John Bodovkar Schaller. Everybody, uh, today we've got a very special episode of Amigos. We're interviewing Philip and Andrew Oliver uh, over in the UK. Hi there. Uh, and uh, Philip and Andrew, just to give uh, for our listeners in the United States that may not be as familiar with your work, uh, they've been video game developers since when? 1983. First, first game was published in 1983 as a typing listing while still at school. Okay, okay. And uh, they worked at first with Codemasters, and they produced games like Super Robin Hood, the Dizzy series, uh, many games in the Simulator series, which. You guys simulated a lot of different things. Yeah, we goats. I think that's happened since. <laughs> Everything from Pro BMX Simulator all the way to Fruit Machine Simulator. Rompery Simulator, Pro Ski Simulator, lots of simulators. Yeah, amazing. Um, at one point during the 1980s, I got this from Wikipedia, full disclosure, it says that 7% of all games in the UK, all the games sold in the UK, were attributed to you guys. Well, there's an, interesting, there's an interesting thing there, actually. Um, we're obviously doing um, research at the moment for a book that Chris Wilkins is writing. Um, and actually, I uh, found a chart whilst looking through my um, attic. Um, and it's a Gallup chart, which was the official recording of all the sales in the UK. And, I found, and just the one I found, we actually had 15.8% of all the sales of all oh the games gosh. in the UK. So, and that's the random one I found. So whilst there was a press release from Codemasters at one point saying 7% of all UK sales, we I, actually found... It, I, it I, can, I can prove that it was 158 at one point. Oh, wow. I, can you think of any other... I mean, is there any other team that, that can brag about sales numbers that high that you can think of? There were some um, big sellers, but generally they were from teams of people. Sure, uh, not just, not so just a duo. Just the two of us. Um, wow. Well, uh, I think we paid an artist some sort of cash in hand to do some uh, bits of graphics for and us. And audio, because we were rubbish at that. <laughs> so yeah. um, so uh, right now, you guys are, uh, you've, you've formed a company called Radiant Worlds. Correct. And, uh, and you are collaborating with uh, a man named Richard Smithies. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. Yes, yeah. that's right. He's our COO. So the three of us are founders of Radiant Worlds. Um, we've actually been working together for more than 10 years. Um, and we've actually known Richard from our childhood. In fact, probably before 1983 even. Oh, wow. Um, so he's a family friend. Um, but he's uh, more on the business side. Um, and... We're the kind of game guys, and we know the games industry. Um, and he's more—he more went into the finance um, and legals and all that kind of stuff. So we all complement each other, and kind of between the three of us, we kind of have all the skills necessary to to run a dev company. That's wonderful. Uh, so we'll we'll get back to that in just a second. But now let's go back to the eighties. <laughs> okay. Um, so, as an American. Um, I think that the the home computer scene in Britain in the 80s is just fascinating because um, you all had 
I mean, there were some some imported machines, but on the whole, you guys really were like your own shop. I mean, you had your own systems, you had your own programmers. What what do you think precipitated that? Uh, what what was the environment uh, as such in the eighties that that was able to occur? So there's an interesting thing. I mean, we've got to go back to um, the eighties before the internet and before a lot of global travel. So actually, the fact that we were kind of independent to America and kind of the rest of the world was because people didn't travel a lot in those days. So the idea of people holidaying in California or Florida, which is a much better place to holiday, (laughs) um, that was actually pretty rare. So um, basically, globalization hadn't happened. Um, Goods that were made in the UK were sold in the UK, be it cars, be it computers, whatever. So we basically, as a, as a nation, had lots of um, creative technical people, a lot of them Cambridge-based, um, but it was all kind of isolated. But, but, but we were isolated, but we had some great people. I mean, obviously, um, the uh, Sinclair with uh, ZX80, um, ZX81 and, Spectrum. Sort of, and all of that. And then you also had the Acorn people who then turned into the BBC and, and the RISC the chips, which has gone on to become ARM. In every single smartphone. Um, <laughs> but that original BBC Micro, it's called BBC, and people think, hang on, that's a TV thing. There was a big push um, from government and corporates to get all kids to learn about computers and, and programming. And the biggest thing was the fact that the BBC said, we'll run weekly programs and we'll make dedicated programs on how to program. But then they thought, but when we're teaching these lessons on the TV, what computer do we do? So they endorsed a computer and then gave all of those computers to schools. Well, so all the, the government then put all yeah. of those BBC computers into all the schools. So they were all sort of coming in and it, it was a big buzz and it was all about sort of programming and yet it was all about programming from the schools and the parents. but. From our point of view, it was all about the games because you can go in the arcades, it was Pac-Man, Space Invaders, uh, Defender, and all we as kids wanted to do is play games. games (laughs) How do you get those games running on those computers? And the the BBC, because of the way it was generated, created, and a very clever machine, um, actually was able to replicate and did replicate some of the arcade machines very, very well. Um, So there were some classic games on it. Now that leads me to another question. Why do you think there were no UK companies that were producing arcade games, or were there, and I just don't know about them? It's all down to financing. So what actually happened was it was relatively easy for um, teenage boys, uh, pretty much exclusively, to buy a hobby computer, kind of with a justification uh, that they tell their parents that this is for homework and and it's part of the coursework for school, but actually secretly this is a games machine. Yeah, you're playing games, but you're trying to write games as well. And a lot of people, it was the the hobbyist thing to prove that you were more than just a gamer. You actually knew how these things work. But what was important was that we had keyboards and they were sold as you can learn to program. So they all came with a manual and you could basically get the keyboard and all this. Now, if you look at what happened elsewhere in the world with consoles, no keyboard, no ability to actually program the thing, with the exception of the VIC-20 and the Commodore 64, obviously, and the Apple, I guess. Um, but generally, when it came to consoles and arcade machines, it's like, no, this had to be a corporate investment. Well, in this country, there was nobody going to make those investments, and the banks weren't going to loan you the money. Mm. So basically, that's why it all came up from 
school kids having computers that were programmable, learning the skills, writing games to kind of impress their mates and actually going, oh, we could actually sell this. And then lots of companies starting to sort of pop up to start publishing them, like the Quicksilver and the Domarks and Codemasters, but, Mastertronics. But, but, you, but as kids, uh, we're all a bit lax about sort of tax laws and all this sort of stuff. I mean, you were kids at school, you, you wanted to show your demos around to people and then people would say, well, we could sell that. And generally you were selling it for a thousand pounds or something, which is damn good money for a school kid, but nothing that you need to worry about tax or anything. So, so sometimes you were kind of under the And you, and you the didn't need to that. go and borrow money from a bank or anything like that. So you were, you were basically just doing it. You could just about afford to do everything you needed to. There was yourself. no overhead. Yeah, no so, so <laughs> there was that environment, whereas in America, it was sort of Atari and um, the NES, and you needed licenses, and you had to get proper... Dev kits. <laughs> yeah, things to sort of be able to publish those cartridges, um, which we didn't really do. Well, um, also, these are the days before the internet, so you couldn't actually do research as to who to contact. If you wanted to get a dev kit for an Atari, where would you start? And I bet if you were a school kid and you tried calling Atari and asking for a dev kit, well, you wouldn't have got through. But even if you did, you'd have got laughed at. And then they'd have asked for some money. And then, then, yeah, I was going to say, and then it, then it comes into, well, do, do pop over for a meeting. It's like, well, hang on a minute. I've got to get on a jet plane and I'm a 13-year-old. It's like, uh, am I supposed to do that? So we had a very different upbringing over here. But it, it, was, it was cool and it, uh, it encouraged lots of entrepreneurial kids to just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And no... Uh, approval processes so just crazy ideas um, um, and, and a, a diversity a phenomenal diversity and you see what the market likes um, see what the publisher want to, want to put out and see what sticks and you can get some very extreme games from text typing adventures to the likes of Chucky Egg to Dizzy to sort of 3D games some of the first sort of 3D games um, like Elite um, I mean that was developed sort of with no finance, just a university student, well, two university students, Ian, in Bell and David uh, Braben, um, with not having to seek approval or seek finance or seek anything, just use their own computer that they've got at home. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it's fascinating. It's it's so much better in so many ways than what we had here in the United States at that time. Where you're right, there were so many processes you had to go through just to get yeah. a game off the ground. Now, yeah. going back to... But the advantage is mm -hmm. that when you got a, a game off the ground in America, your sales were automatically five times greater because of your population. And expensive. So the, the... And expensive so that the income per sale was better. But also because you didn't have a flood of people making the stuff, because those who, the, 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 the bar was higher to get into the market, you sold more again. So the sales of people like David Crane who sort of did the same, had the same kind of skills, his income per game was probably 10 or 20 times oh, what the income more, for one of our games was. Probably way more than that. <laughs> That's true, and I think you see the same You see the same thing now in the Steam marketplace today, yes. where there are so many indie developers and so many games are coming out every single day that it's hard to find a foothold. It dilutes everything yeah. down. But when Steam first came out, they only really wanted the big hitters. They wanted to try yeah. and get hold of all the sort of EAs and, and Activision AAA titles. games mm -hmm. and all those too, but just digital. Um, and and it worked very well. <laughs> there's, still, there's still all of that, but it was it's just sort of 
very high barrier to entry, but if you can get in on there, wow, you can make a lot of money. Now they've lowered the barrier, lowered the barrier, and that's good because in the digital market, it really doesn't matter. Give people the choice to experiment and, and give up and coming indie developers a chance to get a foot in the door. Um, which is what they've done with uh, Steam Green. And it creates stuff. more diversity, and with more diversity, you make a more appealing sort of offerings, which means you kind of can bring in more audience. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who would never play Call of Duty, but they will play this game about trains. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that's what they're into. I think uh, if you look at the success of a game like World of Tanks, for example, which is kind of an esoteric title, but it has a huge market share that I yeah. think without digital distribution. But... <laughs> I was going to say that's a triple A game. I was, I was kind of thinking something more niche, and even trains isn't that niche. Um... Well, Minecraft was uh, uh, first. I mean, isn't Minecraft famously one that got turned down from Steam for yeah, not being yeah, powerful? Yeah, right. Yes. So there you go. I think some people might actually like to see that game. You know? Yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> I, I think they might have proved the point, um, which I think is what sort of led Steam to into lowering the barrier again. Saying, okay, there's obviously games out there that can become sort of sleeper hits that we just are turning away, and we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. So that's. Now, when you were teenagers and you were getting into all this, what if you had to pick two or three of the most formative events? that occurred that allowed you to do what you did. Find it. Sorry, I got a sun right in my eyes. Oh. <laughs> it's going to go and change the blind, okay. um, but that's fine. Formative events. I guess um, our parents getting our first, well, there's, there's a few events, I guess. Um, a friend of ours had an Apple IIe, um, one of the first sort of shipped into the UK, and um, it, it was his dad. He was um, a university lecturer, and we got to play on it and got to play sort of things like Taxman and Zork and things like that. And we were absolutely hooked. It was like, man, we got to get a computer. So uh, we did a paper round and we managed to buy um, an 8-bit computer, uh, a Dragon 32, which only shipped in the UK. And even then the company went bust, so it didn't ship enough. <laughs> um, which was quite interesting because we had to kind of make our own games because nobody else was making them. So kind of make, got to make your own. Um, so getting the first computer, I guess, was, was key. We then entered a, a TV competition, the Saturday show, to which the video is on the internet, on the YouTube. But that was national television. And that was national television, and that was Saturday morning, and every kid watches it, and we didn't dare tell any of our school friends we were going to be on it. Um, but we went along, we got interviewed, the footage is there on the internet now, and it's, it's quite funny seeing us as 15-year-olds. Um, and that gave us such a boost of confidence that after that, it's like, we're going to do this and we're going to make some amazing games. When, when you're at school, a lot of people are kind of talking, talking about, sort of, what are you going to do when you leave school? And so many kids go, oh, I don't really know. And they sort of sometimes just go to university because they know that that's the subject that they might get a degree in. But they don't really know what they want as a career. Whereas... From sort of the age of 12 or 13, when we'd seen Space Invaders of Pac-Man in the arcade, it was like, we were fascinated and thinking, well, clearly some people are making these. How do we do it? But then when we won that national competition, we were sort of recognized everywhere. And people go, oh, you're the guys who write these games. It's like, you write games. And it's like, it was just labeled on us. It's like, oh, yeah. And it was kind of then a given that we were going to be the guys that write games. And, and we just kind of just wanted to improve our skills um, more and more. We sold a lot of budget games to various different people for a few hundred pounds, a few hundred dollars. Um, but it was the equipment was costing us more than we were getting back in revenue. But our skills were improving all the time. And then the next massive um, moment, the, the turning point, was meeting the Darlings. Uh, Richard and David Darling, who were just setting up a company called Codemasters, 
never heard of it. This was their first presence. It was at a trade show. We went along to the trade show with some loose ideas of games we could write. Um, and we met them and we thought, oh, you're a new company. Who are you? What do you do? And they basically said they were going to start publishing games. So we said, well, that's good. We've already sold a few games, a few hundred dollars pounds each, sort of per game. So we brought them out and they were like, oh, some professional developers that have already done this before. And we said, well, how much would you pay? Not telling them how much we were being paid. Mm -hmm. Right. I was say, that, uh, that was the key. That was the key. We didn't tell them how much you were being paid for the others. And, and so um, I brought out like a paper design of our next game, which was Super Robin Hood. And so I said, well, we've got this paper game sort of design. And if we were to do this, how much would you pay for it? And David Darling answered £10,000, which in American money is about $15,000. And back in the 80s, we're school kids. We were school kids. That's a lot of money. You could buy a nice sports car. It's wow. like, whoa. You wouldn't be able to insure it. But. <laughs> and, and, and for us, and for us, I mean, this game that we were pitching was something we were perf perfectly capable of writing and something that we kind of estimated would be a couple of months' work. We, we accelerated that to get the money. Mm -hmm. So we managed to do the whole game in, in a month. That was the month September 96. We then went back naively because we sort of almost agreed a handshake deal. Okay, we'll make a game. It we'll check very, back with you. <laughs> it seemed very nice, guys. It, yeah. It seemed... So, so a month later, we went back to their offices. Um, I said, "There you go, finished game. There's the master. Can we have ten thousand pounds, please?" Um, to which they then had to break it to us that that was an estimation of royalties, oh. um, which was a bit disheartening. But there and then, they would write us a check for two thousand dollars. So three thousand pounds, and that's more than we'd ever had by some considerable amount. Mm. And we thought, well, okay, because that was the a first sort of production run. Yeah. Um, and then they were kind of saying, well, if it's as good as you say it is, there'll be good royalties. Mm. That old line, we heard that a few times over the years. Uh, <laughs> but the good news was, <laughs> it, it did. It did. It went straight to number one. <laughs> the reviews were phenomenal for it. It was something that we were very capable of kind of do that sort of thing again. So we were just started writing game after game, setting ourselves the, the target of one game per month, which we pretty much kept up for three or four years. Yeah, we slipped a few times, but... <laughs> we and, did a couple less and, than and, that. And, so. and they kept generally to the sort of agreement with the royalties, and we did get the 10,000 for Super Robin Hood, and subsequent ones were similar. Yeah, that's still um, astonishing fact, that, that you were able to produce on that, you know, to produce a game a month for you know three what? or four years. We, we actually look back at the volume of work we did over that period. And we surprised been, ourselves. And we do. <laughs> we're like, how did we actually manage to put out that amount of code and design and graphics? And, and by the way, we keep everything. We keep all the source code, we all the graphics, all the design notes, all the letters. It's precious to us. I don't want to lose it. It is. Um, so, so everything is archived. Mm. Um, and in fact, we did, went through a massive scanning se session recently. So all the paperwork is now completely scanned as well and all digital. Um, it's, it's over one terabyte. Um, but the um, the good news sort of about all of that is that it was quite staggering how much we did. But on the other hand, our friends had all gone to university. We were decided that we were going to have this, we were going to make a gaming career, a career in games. And we've just had a number one hit. So do it again, guys, do it again. And we just decided to knuckle down 20 hours a day I know that sounds ridiculous, but um, 
That's what we did seven days a week. We just worked stupid, stupid hours because of all our mates had gone and we had to prove that it was the right decision and not, that, not to go to university and to do this. And what an amazing opportunity. And the fact that we didn't fluke it. We listened to the radio a lot. Um, and I remember when we had just written Super Robin Hood was the same time that Kylie Minogue had a hit. Um, you should be so lucky. <laughs> we used to listen to the radio a lot, and I actually quite like the song personally. But um, but he just said, "Ah, it's a one-hit wonder. You'll never hear from that girl again." Um, and it and people just, used to say that a, a, a lot about pop stars. You'll never hear from them again. They've had a one. It's a one-hit wonder. Yeah. So we we had enough money to buy us a nice car, and then we thought, well, we could make a better game than we made last time. We've just got to make sure that we keep doing this. And we were on. A sort of high, but a high in sort of like knuckle down and do the bloody work and get it chipped. <laughs> yeah. Was it um, harder to come up with original concepts or harder to do the programming? Um, we did both together. Um, so uh, we played lots of games and we had to done for the sort of leading four or five years. And so it was taking a mashup of kind of games that we'd seen either in the arcade or we played at home and looking at kind of TV and we love cartoons, um, all the sort of Disney cartoons and the sort of after school sort of kids program and, and things. A little bit like Dungeon Master cartoon, which everybody said was rubbish, but we actually quite enjoyed it. <laughs> and He-Man and She-Ra and all this kind of stuff. And so just looking at all the kind of media that was around and just going, we could do a game by taking this idea and this idea and this idea and combining it. And there was nobody to approve it with. So if Andrew liked what I was saying, I kept talking. And if I liked what he was saying, we kind of just kept doing you it. You just did it. I mean, and I mean, ever since we've written out of a lot of games over the years, you just have meetings after meetings of like trying to get approvals up the and line. And convince other people and, in the team. I mean, one of the things that's, that's sad as soon as it, it sort of everything goes a bit corporate and you get teams and stuff is you spend your entire life trying to convince everyone else that it's a good idea and trying to describe. And pretty much what happens is it dilutes ideas down to the lowest common denominator or somebody able to say, look, it works because it's in that game. Whereas actually in, in the very early days, it, it worked because we thought it did in our heads. So let's just start programming just and start see. Let's <laughs> doing it and see what happens. Whereas nowadays, that kind of thing doesn't really happen much. I mean, it's brilliant that there's a huge indie scene and uh, um, game jams and stuff, because I think game jams is one, one of those ideas where they throw something out and say, just just go mental. You, you got hours or whatever. You've got 48 hours. What's the thing? If you're going to base your game on a piece Don't of... spend too much time talking about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like if you're going to base your game on a piece of toast or something, um, <laughs> sort of the crazy, crazy ideas that come out. But that's because you're not asking for anyone's approval and you're not thinking it through too much. Mm. You just have a bit of a brainstorm, 10 minutes. Yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. Let's just go for it, you know, and we'll make and the that, best of it. And that's what we were doing. Um, and and our games turned out to be very successful. So, I mean, things like jet skis. We'd seen jet skis on TV, I think. Um, probably... Police Academy. It was Police Academy. <laughs> was it? Uh, I was going to say David Hasselhoff and uh, Baywatch, probably. But... Uh, I remember it from Police Academy. They, were we quite, uh, they look cool. It's like, let's make a game based on those. I wonder if we can make a game based on those. And and you, from that, you just you start coding and you start just scribbling and you just get on with it and you don't seek approval from anybody. And you just turn up at Codemasters, as it was back then, and go... We've got another game for you. It's like, oh, what's this one about? In fact, there's a very funny story. We um, we turned up at Codemasters with um, Helicopter Gunship, um, which um, was Rambo uh, reference. We watched the film Rambo, 
saw this helicopter gunship and thought, oh, that's awesome. Imagine if you could play a helicopter gunship. So we came up with this game, did the game. We went up to Codemasters and we showed them the game. And they're like, this is amazing. This is going to be really, really great. They had to phone an artist to get them to do a cover illustration. So they phoned this artist and they said to the artist, yeah, we need a new illustration. Uh, it's the Oliver's Twins game. They've, they've come up with this game um, called Gunship Simulator. A little bit different from the other simulators, which are generally sports. Yeah. So the guy was like, yeah, 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 fine, I'll do that. Anyway, a week later, this lovely illustration turns up of a battleship because we used the word gunship simulator. We didn't say helicopter gunship oh, simulator. Nice. And so he did a beautiful illustration of a battleship. And we go, uh, oh, this is a helicopter. So it was really funny because then Codemasters were asking around all their sort of devs and sending out letters to people going, and then we got uh, like a battleship simulator because we've got a lovely piece of artwork. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny looking back on it because we were writing games on computers, but we didn't have the internet and we didn't have Skype and we didn't have all these things. And had a local DVD shop, so, uh, a, a VHS shop, a VHS shop. Oh yes, that's right, because we watched the movies on VHS. Um, but yeah, you, you'd you'd make a phone call, say we're going to come up and visit you and do that. But quite often you would be trying to just do stuff over the phone, and it's amazing the sort of things that are lost in translation. As yeah. They say. But also we didn't seek approval. We just turned up with masters and just go, there you go. There's another game. And it was all quite amateur in the fact that they would just sort of get a kid to sort of play it for a day or so and say, yeah, didn't see the crash. Like, chip it. it. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think some games didn't even get tested. They just go, well, if the Olivers gave us a master, just duplicate it. I know that happened with Fantasy World Dizzy and we did all the instructions and everything. And in fact, one of the guys sort of said, no, nobody tested it. No, like, it's just and we're like, Oh, uh, uh, would have tested it. Well, actually. we gave it a day. So yeah. it's probably all right. It went on to sell about 200, 300,000 copies. The games are quite small. They either, Did okay. The, the games are quite small, and they either kind of worked or didn't work. I mean, games are so complex now that the amount of places that you could find bugs and the amount of different configurations. These computers were always the same. as 32K of memory or something. Uh, A game, the games quite often would fit in about 20K because that's all you could use after you've taken away the screen RAM and, and everything else. Yeah. 20K isn't that much. Although it's quite amazing how much we did fit in 20K. And that's another thing. We look back when we're doing these Let's Play videos for YouTube, we look back and go, how did we manage to squeeze all of that into 20K? It's like, it just doesn't seem possible. Yeah. Yet we were the ones doing it, right, but it doesn't right. seem possible. Um, we were a lot, they were quite efficient. <laughs> now, there is. It had to be. We coded an assembler, so you, you're literally just looking at the sort of three letter acronyms, and each acronym load, save, add, whatever is just a single byte and then a single byte. I used to go, we used to go through the code going, oh, we're 20 bytes over. Uh, how can we do this in 20 less bytes? Or, yeah. So you, move, you shuffle code around or you change a few instructions just to sort of save a couple of bytes. Yeah, it's and that's like, one of the magical like things. Doing a Twitter message, it is really. like doing a Twitter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. when, you're, when you have constraints like that, I think it forces you to think of more creative solutions than you would yeah. have normally. I actually quite liked it. It's like, um, it's like if you're asked to do a piece of art, you would actually like to say, well, what shall I draw the picture of? Rather than blank for sheer paper, do some amazing art. Mm -hmm. it's like, no, like, no, help, help me. Give, give us me a subject. Give us an idea. Like, tell us spend 10 minutes or a day on it and uh, give us a subject in which you kind of sometimes just, you need constraints and, and various things to sort of go, oh, right, I know what to do now. Yeah. Whereas otherwise you're just kind of a bit lost. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, there's a video clip on YouTube of a segment that you filmed for HTV News in 1984. Okay. Uh, it, it, it shows yourselves and John Paul Eldridge walking okay. up the driveway of your home. And uh, the presenter introduces you as the Oliver Twins, even though there's three of you. Um, she never mentions your neighbor by name. But referring to Philip, yeah, but um, but Philip says his bedroom has been turned into a computer workshop for the three to spend every spare minute designing new games to tempt today's generation of video happy youngsters. Tell us more about that neighbor. So there's um, a sneaky thing we must tell you about that clip. Um, the journalist who organised all of that was his mother. <laughs> so. It was all a little bit of like, I want to promote my son. The Oliver Twins are really famous. They're doing really well. And my son has worked with them and done some stuff. Yeah, so so we'd cool. like to center the story much more on, on my son, John Paul. Oh, okay. He did some good stuff. I he mean, did, yeah, he's a he, nice guy. He did music for several of our games. And he wrote a couple of his ga games himself, which we sort of helped him get published and pushed him in the right direction. But, um, the, but, the, angle of that, but the angle of that particular article was very much of a... Push John Paul a lot, can you, Mr. Yeah, TV see. presenter? <laughs> now, is there any particular reason why he left and went on? I guess he became an IT consultant. Why you didn't continue collaborating together? Uh, yeah, we just went our different ways. I mean, um, when Codemasters uh, took off, like our games took off with Codemasters, we moved away um, up to Leamington Spa, which is a couple of hours away. He, and he was only doing the music and only for the Amstrad. I mean, no, that was the other thing. He was also one year younger. Than us, so he had to stay at school. So the sort of year that we sort of had this success and moved away to sort of to be near our publisher because the drive was too far, uh, then then suddenly like well he was still still at school and and, and we weren't close to and him. to be honest so he'd do music remotely but we couldn't really collaborate much yeah. more than that and um, to be honest he didn't really want to do much more than that. I mean we were working stupid hours. He could see what we were doing. Um, he. He didn't really want to do that. Um, so it's not a Pete Best situation then? No, 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 no not at all. No. Um, I mean, uh, he's... He I would mean, have had his last year we, at school. We talk, we talk to him occasionally. He's very proud of what he did. Well, I say he's proud of what he did. He actually was saying how rubbish his music was, and he could do so much better now. But well, like, clearly, yeah. But, 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 exactly. But actually, he, he enjoyed what he did. Um, he has no regrets, but he moved... He moved off and did his whole IT career, and he's very happy with that. I mean, the year that we were doing that stupid work, he would have been doing his last year exams. So he was kind of effectively kind of gone for that year and never really contacted us to say, should we do, he, he's should done we do a, more? He's done a nice memoir piece um, for the book. Mm -hmm. So we, yeah. we've seen drafts of the book. It's not in final layout. Um, and there's a nice memoir for, from, from John Paul. Oh, good, good. Um, can we talk a little bit about Codemasters' approach to the NES? Uh, everything from the Aladdin Deck Enhancer <laughs> to the Game Genie. This is cool. what, uh, as an American, this is what I remember Codemasters mostly for. Oh, yes. Producing these slightly dodgy uh, things that you can buy that weren't licensed for the Nintendo, including your game. Um, and why why did they did they really think that they would lose too much money by officially licensing these things or was there another so, reason so it was a case of they'd had great success for five or so years in the uk publishing games on the spectrum the commodore uh and the amstrad, amstrad and then we went on to the st and the, the amiga. Guitar, st and the amiga and and pc uh it was all good and you do what you like when you like and you 
stick it out at your price, you don't get approvals. And they were becoming quite rich and powerful and feeling, wow, this is amazing. We do everything. And so Nintendo's were getting quite strong and powerful in America. They were obviously thinking, we need to sort of move out of the UK, sell to, sell to America. We'd started going across Europe. So our game started to become successful in France and Germany and particularly Spain. Um, but they wanted to attack America. I mean, we all came over to the CES because that's where it all was happening. So we had some amazing trips to Chicago and Las Vegas. And and it was just an eye-opener going, wow, the scale of the, the sort of... The games the, industry. The games industry. But it's all sort of generally centered around Nintendo and then sort of Sega were just coming up and Atari were going down. Um, <laughs> uh, but but it, immediately it was a case of, well, how do you publish sort of on Nintendo? And Nintendo said, we control everything. And I don't know, they just said, well, that's not... Like, we, we not only control it and approve it, but you have to pay us the sort of license fee, which was kind of dressed up in the fact that they manufactured the cartridges. Right, right. Actually, it sort of made sense. But I remember the fact that they were saying, blimey, uh, I shouldn't really say the figure, but the amount that they were charging per cartridge was pretty damn big. And the guys were just looking at themselves going, we can make those cartridges so cheaper. Can't cost that much. Like, but if we sign with Nintendo, we have to let them manufacture and distribute. And that, that contract will always commit us to that cost of inventory. Yeah, and, and they was yeah, and that's why you had to pay up front. So and you, you had to get approval of every game up front. So they were saying, Well, hang on, what happens if Nintendo just don't like our game? So for example, Dizzy, Nintendo looks at it and said, Not interested. That, then that's it. Then, there is no more debate. Yeah, then you've sort of wasted it. So but then if they say they do like it and you say, right, we'll have half a million cartridges. That's a lot of inventory there was and just, a lot of cost. There was just so much money and so much risk because you, you can sort of, if it, if it doesn't sell and does an ET, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> it does an ET. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's no Landfill, baby. Spielberg. I think, I think we're in the games industry. You know, we know what that reference is. Um, <laughs> so th they were just saying, but we, we, we don't, we've never been controlled like this. We've never had these sort of boundaries and stuff put in our way. Why do we need to? Why don't we just do it ourselves? And I think it was a case of them coming back and saying, how hard can it be to make our own cartridges? And it started off as a sort of technical challenge. Can we actually make cartridges but, ourselves? But, but they had lots of technical people. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so that didn't seem to be a problem. Then it was like, well, let's have a look at the legals. And they, they sought advice. And people were saying, if, if you were Ford and you insisted on the people who manufactured tyres had to get approval of Ford, that would be ludicrous. So surely anybody else can produce media um, for, yeah. for this console. Yeah. They, they weren't producing copies of the console they were just creating, creating media they for were, that console yeah. and the, the uh, yeah i remember they said they'd been talking to lawyers and lawyers were saying it's exactly the same as producing tires for a car and and tire manufacturers do not get permission to make the tires for a certain car um they obviously have to be of a certain quality standard and they, they have to fit mm. <laughs> right. um, and so they were told that legally they could produce these games but obviously no thought otherwise. Yeah, this was this was at the birth of an industry, and it was very much if somebody did this, if somebody broke that golden rule of not paying Nintendo, then EA, Activision, Ubisoft, it would open the floodgates. Sure. Everyone else go, hang on, why are we paying? And so, so, so Nintendo had to come down hard. They, they, they had to fight it, um, and Codemasters just decided they were going to fight back. Uh, 
whereas most people would just say, should we just go to another computer? <laughs> we... But I mean, the NES was such a juggernaut worldwide. It was. It it was. was. So, so once they'd started down that road, um, there may have been negotiations, I don't know, where Nintendo might have said, why don't you just we license it across to us? But mm. we don't know. Um, but, they might, but Nintendo might equally have taken the other approach, which is we're going to show to Activision, to EA, and to Acclaim, and all these other people, you don't cross us. We're going to make an example so, of that. So it, it kind of made sense from, from their point of view. Um, I have to say, we having, stayed out of it. We, we, we just we, wanted to make some yeah, awesome yeah. games and sell a lot of them yeah. to a huge market. So that's, I was going to come back to the fact that we were just making the games, and it was like, there was just all this politics and, and legal yeah. case, and our games... And we didn't want to get involved in that. So that's kind of... Well, and it was another why we left Code Master. As a kid... I, I rented what was the what was the the first Dizzy game that came out? It didn't come Fantastic out in the Deck Enhancer, but it was the Fantastic Adventure yeah. Dizzy. Um, uh, I oh, with the Aladdin, that. there was um, Dizzy the, the Adventurer came shipped with the Aladdin. Okay, and it had I mean the cart had dip switches on it that you had to manipulate, yeah. and and I remember reading in Nintendo Power. It seemed like that month, you know, this article that just made me feel so bad because they were like these these companies like Codemasters are ruining you know the NES, and I just thought, boy, should I have rented that? And I was like an eleven year old kid. And they put me on a guilt trip just for that. <laughs> they, they they weren't ruining it. They um, certain industries go down certain avenues. So in the early days, it was assumed that. You could write software for computers without approval. Did, did Commodore approve all the software that was put out on the Commodore 64? No, of course not. No. So up until Nintendo's new business model mm -hmm. of you make you you sign a contract with us and we duplicate all your goods for you, mm -hmm. that was that was the first time that happened. So so it's like, well, do we go with them or do we go with the traditional yeah. business and, model and, and the, we do and what the, we want? And the industry has now gone that way, where every console manufacturer controls the content of their console. Using the Nintendo business model. Yeah, mm -hmm. using that business model. And it works. Uh, but it's very different from PC. Sure. And so, it uh, actually, up till a few years ago, as an indie, it was very difficult to get onto console. I have to say, they've been a bit more open nowadays, and uh, they have their digital it's store still, markets. It's still a hurdle. It, it's a hurdle that, yeah. It's easier to write on Android or write on the PC. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now, on on bedrooms to billions, a lot of the interviewees talked about. Uh, By the way, can I just say sure. that once we discovered the NES and we started programming, we absolutely loved it. Oh. I mean, what an awesome games machine! It was. I good. mean, the the it was so elegant in its architecture. The sort of the character based screen, the hardware well, scrolling, the sprites. Yeah, it, and it did what it needed to do. And and you look at how fluid all the games are that came out mm -hmm. from everybody else and the ones that we did. We were dead proud of sort of being able to do games on the NES, and they just look beautiful. And to this day, you load them up and go, "That's class." That what is. were what were some of your favorite games on the NES? Well, we obviously created fan, uh, fan, the Fantastic Adventures of Dizzy mm -hmm. was our first game. It took about a year to write. We thought, "Whoo." Um, but then we did some shorter ones. We got ninety-two percent review in N Power and, and things like that. Um, I remember beating Zelda. That was that was <laughs> yeah. That was class. Best adventure game of ninety-one, I think it was. Yeah. Best adventure game. We came first. Zelda came second. Yeah. Wow. So Amazing. I mean, so that so that was fantastic. <laughs> we did we did Operation Gunship, which we renamed to well, Firehawk. To Firehawk. I was going to say. I said it again without that word helicopter in it again. It's like that artist, like, what's wrong with that picture? <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, uh, so we renamed that to Firehawk, and that was pretty slick, and that took about nine months to write. Super Robin Hood. Then Super That's Robin Hood sure. we produced, which was, yeah, a couple of months to do uh, that. Busy the Adventurer. Uh, that went with the Aladdin cartridge. BMX Simulator. Yeah. Yeah, we put that out. Um, Wonderland Dizzy, which obviously didn't get published until last year and and a couple of other games there's a couple of other games that we have found since so uh there's some more nintendo games can uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah because they, they were held up with legal legal action um so any and, any chance that those might see the light of day at some point who knows seems likely all right <laughs> I, I like that <laughs> So, we're, 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 I mean, I have to say that we are passionate about our art, mm -hmm. and, and one of the biggest things is wanting people to play our games. I mean, that's that's kind of why we do it, fundamentally. I mean, yes, we've got to pay the bills and all that kind of stuff, so the money and the business side of it needs to work too, but, but the fact that we've created this art and people haven't seen it, we kind of want people to see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, um... In Bedrooms to Billions, several of the interviewees talked about being tempted to kind of move shop from UK to Japan or the US uh, for yeah. various reasons. Yeah. Were you ever tempted to make that move? Well, yeah, I mean, um, we, we'd been very successful in the UK. We've got sort of girlfriends or wives, girlfriends who turned into wives. Um, we started employing people in the UK before this kind of kicked off. We started having offices. So we kind of rooted ourselves more to the UK. But in fact, Planes are very useful things. So we did when, we actually, when we actually sort of fell out, well, we were doing lots of business meetings sort of in America. We were going to all the trade shows in America. Um, and so we were doing three or four plane trips a year anyway. But then we discovered after the breakup with Codemasters that actually the best finance companies in the world are all in America or Japan. Um, and so we actually started sort of doing deals with the likes of it, sort of EA and MGM and and all of these kind of companies. Universal and Disney. Universal Disney. And so actually what we ended up doing is rather than moving shop, just having all of our clients in America and a lot of our game sales sort of generating in America. But, but, but you're absolutely right. There was a UK brain drain. There was a lot of talk of, the, of all the developers we're just getting, early 90s yeah we're all all going to seattle and los angeles and san francisco and tokyo um it was a well-known fact and people around us were sort of yeah. disappearing off and you're thinking well you're young you're single um it would be an adventure for and, you and, and quite well paid yeah some of them I mean, some uh, of them didn't work out but some of them did and they stayed there yeah i mean the the because the american market is such a bigger market um and the way they think and the way they finance everything they could always out-invest you. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why a lot of the UK publishers started to sort of either get taken over or go out of business is because they just couldn't raise the finance that the Americans could. Um, and so... And you need big investments. I mean, games started getting pretty big. I mean, as soon as you sort of on to... Uh, yeah, the teams place, of 12 people. Yeah. I mean, the place... <laughs> <laughs> Massive. <laughs> I mean, the, but the, back then, that was big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the PlayStation was typically like $1 million kind of contract. And you have to have 12 to 15 people in a team. Mm -hmm. and, and, For a year. Yeah. And that, which was huge. And I mean, that, and you wouldn't get that finance out of a UK publisher. Yeah, um, you just couldn't get a million dollars out or pounds or whatever. <laughs> um, you just you just find it very difficult to sort of raise that. But um, yeah, we got in with uh, American publishers and uh, we ended up getting a lot of TV and film licenses that we, we did on PlayStation. 
Um, what kind of influence do you think the Dizzy Games had on the point-and-click adventure genre? So we'd obviously come from um, the world of, um, well, watching cartoons on TV, but playing text adventures. And it's kind of, and, and playing lots of, there, there was arcade leisure, games. Yeah, and there was Leisure Suit Lowry and those sort of point-and-click that we probably so, after Dizzy, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. But it, it, Monkey Island. I am. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but th there was this idea that um, I was going to say, if we go back to our first sort of Super Robin Hood, is kind of a predecessor to Dizzy in the fact that it's it's kind of side on. You're set in a castle and it's kind of rich graphics, but it's a it kind of an adventure and everything. And it's basically taking an arcade game and a story and the sort of visuals from cartoons and just trying to mash them all together. Yeah. Um, and what we found is um, that, that we were slightly annoyed that games was just so hardcore in those oh, days. Yeah, and cool. all the platform games were so difficult. It was all pixel-perfect yeah, jumping. I hear and you. Exactly right. Um, Manic Miner and uh, Jet Set Willy were the two classic that everyone knows in the UK, but you go back and play those, and they are Impossible. so they're hard. Then. They're I can't hard. even get past <laughs> the second <laughs> you know? We'd made Robin Hood, and we'd made it so that we could beat it, and it was a lot easier. And it got criticised for being a bit easy, but we said, but actually, you know... Everybody enjoys it. Everyone, Isn't that the point? Whenever we, we meet <laughs> yeah. anyone, right? So the reviewers are always hardcore. So the magazines were like knocked it, but then you talk to people, people go, oh, I loved it, I loved it, I could play for like an hour, and I've actually sort of like got so far through it, whereas I can't get through these other games. And so we were just thinking, well, we just need to make games simpler. Um, because everyone had assumed that a game needs to kill you within three minutes, because they were copying the model that worked for arcades. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's like, well, if you loaded it off cassette. And you own it. And you own it. Why can't you spend the evening playing it? Um, and so we w had the idea of an arcade game that we just wanted to make. A more of an adventure. Yeah, more of a slower paced and, and uh, thoughtful and, and take it away from just sheer dexterity. Yeah. So it was everything was about twitch and dexterity and your control. We wanted to move it more towards story and, and puzzles, adventure and, and discovery and everything. Did you have much of a chance to talk to any other people in your position? I mean, bedroom programmers? Not really. Not really. No. It's only when we kind of met Codemasters that you even met a couple of other programmers. But uh, They might be in the office at the time and you agreed to go to the pub with them after, after work. But, but even then, you wouldn't really talk about games no, much. generally girls. I think no. pub talk is generally talking about girls. <laughs> the fact is, like, <laughs> does anybody dare fear go and talk to her? <laughs> we're all geeks. So we're all programmers. I don't, think, I don't fancy our odds. <laughs> so you all were working in a vacuum pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I think well, that's... A, a vacuum from the point of other people like Gordon, but you can go and play the game but we sure. were playing we were playing all the games yeah, so i mean gordon let down the arcade machines and um marble madness and stuff like that so you see arcade machines you go wow that's fantastic you'd see the games that sort of people are sort of playing on the home computers and so that's so we were at the magazines and so that's all your reference yeah, so we had all the reference of all the games that existed but not really talking to other people mm -hmm. you're right I think it's so interesting the way, when you talk about the model of making games back then where they were looking at arcade games that were designed to suck quarters out of your pocket or whatever. Yes. Yep. And I think it's so much more fulfilling to produce a game that, you know, once you complete it, well, how fast can I complete it then? Or, you know, you can set, you continue to set goals for yourself, but you feel mm -hmm. like you've gotten your money's worth. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, um, the most games that you look back with fondness are the ones that you beat. Yeah. So actually... 
you had to get the balance just right. And I think we got close to getting it just right. They were beatable was, games. Yeah, they, they were hard. They would take a long time, but you could beat them. Mm-hmm. And I think with a with the puzzles that we put in, once you, it was once quite you difficult knew- to overcome a puzzle, but once you'd overcome it, you got, I know what to do next time. That's not the problem anymore. Whereas things like the dexterity, it's like, you do over time it get a little bit better, a little bit better, but it's like it's still almost as hard on day thirty as it was on day one. Right, right. You got slightly better, <laughs> <laughs> but, but with puzzle games, you'll learn. If you're playing Pac-Man, you'll learn a few techniques, but you'll never get past level ten. Like you got to just be insanely brilliant to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, what about the the British convention of naming each sort of screen? That you're on, um, we did where, where did where did that come <laughs> where from? Where did that come from? Um, I think it was in Manic Minor, um, but whether that was the first one, yeah, Jet um, Set Willy. I mean, it obviously sort of said all oh, the ballroom and the attic mm-hmm. and and those rooms, and it, it it maybe it's something that you could talk about with your friends, going mm-hmm. like, have you got to the attic? And it's like, oh, as opposed to have you got to level thirteen? Right, right. Um, and I think it just felt a bit more friendly and something that you could talk about and discuss. And we liked the idea that... It's narratively much richer than saying sure. level 13. Because <laughs> so, what you're trying to do is you're trying to submerge these people, with 22k of memory, remember, trying to submerge them into this fantasy world. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so everything you can do to sort of layer up the sort of, you are really in this other place. Yeah, so we, we'd have the sort of spooky minds or behind the waterfall or the ice palace and these those really enigmatic yeah. sounding places right. yeah right like, in a big graphic like you said if you're talking to your buddies on the playground and, and you say have you been to the ice palace or, whoa really? yeah yeah exactly. that's right usually in 20 characters i seem to remember <laughs> <laughs> just, just the way text fonts worked the word ice is very good yeah um <laughs> it used to always be about 20 characters and it's like oh my god we've got to make something that sounds quite cool and then we have to draw something so we think of like cool sounding locations and, and label them up because it sounded better than levels and we were trying to pull ourselves away from the fact that they are levels effectively but they're joined levels that make a world yeah and and the, the world i mean if you look at dizzy i mean one of the biggest inspiration was the hobbit um and you can probably see it in the game it's like you kind of think of the mountains and mm-hmm. stuff um and we wanted to sort of submerge people into into a world like that yeah yeah um now what about uh psygnosis uh pugsy what did you think of that when you when you played there was a few um <laughs> i just don't think that one no, i can, there, there I can a, picture the box but i can't picture the game there, there, there was a few similar games that once dizzy had been successful but um what do they say um copying is the greatest form of flattery mm-hmm. yeah so we were kind of much more focused on what we were doing rather than what everybody else was doing. Um, we we were working stupid number of hours a day. We didn't really have much time to look up and look at what other people were doing. The time that you actually got to look at what other people were doing was at the trade shows. So you'd go along to the CES and walk around and go, oh, that's very interesting what they did there. I mean, we might have seen Mario at one of those trade shows, uh, Super Mario Brothers, and go, oh, I like what you're doing there. Um, that's kind of the first we saw it. With first we saw it was about 1990, I think. I mean, I know it'd been out for three or four years. We hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of people have sort of said to us, "Super Robin Hood must have been inspired by Mario." It's like, like uh, we haven't seen that. We haven't that. seen that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, there are some similarities, but we hadn't seen it. No, we had seen Donkey Kong. 
I remember. Uh, yes, we, yes, of course. We, we, we've, we've seen Donkey Kong. Because there's um, a popular arcade machine. Right, right. The idea of a single screen platforming game was yeah, out there. Exactly. But, we'd, but, yeah, yeah, we'd seen that. And in fact, we'd seen that. It was one of the only games he had on the Dragon 32. Completely unofficial, unlicensed, not as good version. <laughs> Copy. <Yeah. laughs> Killer Gorilla. Killer Gorilla. Do you still but, have that Dragon 32 somewhere? Yeah. It's kicking on. They have everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You so many people we threw have that it. stuff out. I'm glad you guys have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, one thing about the, the book that Chris Wilkins and, and Roger Keane are writing is it's an opportunity to show what's in all those boxes. Um, the only problem is it's limited to 320 pages. No, we, um, we gave them too much, way too much information. We, yeah. Oh my God, you swamped us. Yeah, we did completely swamp them. Um, they've done a very, very good job of condensing it down, but we still look at it and go, oh, but you miss so much. <laughs> um, but what is there is pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, speaking, um, you guys have, oh, I'm look, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, I was going to say, it'll be a fun look into what it was like at the very beginning of the games industry. Yeah. And, and we've tried to make it kind of informative and, and kind of inspiring um, of kind of what the story was of the twists and turns. We haven't tried to paint it more real than it happened or more um, celebrity than it was. We've kind of just said the way it was. I mean, walk, working in porter cabins in the middle of winter and stuff to sort of get your game out and ship it on time and stuff like that. Um, so some people kind of thought that we had a different celebrity life and we just painted the way it was. And we try to make it entertaining and we try to cover all the points. And actually, Roger is the guy who kind of condensed the story down. And it's really readable and it, and it makes a fun story. Now, um, go ahead and let's, let's finish plugging this book. Where can, sure. you, where can we get it from? Well, it will be uh, available what? soon from Retrofusion Books. Okay. Um, it was a Kickstarter, so there's a Kickstarter page called "Let's Get Diz Let's Go Dizzy: The Story of the Oliver Twins." So, uh, but the Kickstarter has closed now. But yeah. I think you can sort of register if you Google the Oliver Twins book. Um, it's there. I know that it will be on Amazon um, because he always puts all of his books on Amazon. So I expect a lot of people just find it through Amazon. Yeah, it'd be a couple of months' time. Yeah, um, and, and yeah. we're getting close to final. There's still a few pages outstanding, and I'm still trying to squeeze some more in. <laughs> um, but um, he's basically said he's got to finish the end of October. He absolutely must finish by the end of October. It's got to be sent to print. And is um, this going to be sort of a coffee table style book with, with color with photos and everything? It's very, very colorful. Yeah. Yes, very. <laughs> but I mean, that's the medium we work in. I mean, we, we work in visuals, don't we? So uh, so it's, it's right that it's kind of more picture than it is text. Right. Um, there's enough text. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I know that uh, we'll be reviewing it on the show and hopefully it'll be a huge hit. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, just a couple more questions before we close out. Um, you all have uh, two brothers and a sister. What did they end up doing with their lives? Um, okay, so our oldest brother Paul. followed our dad into the Navy. He was, so our dad's a naval architect, designed submarines. So let's talk just for a few minutes about your current project. So uh, can you give us the elevator pitch? Sky Saga. We are trying to create a a fantasy world online huge community that everybody can sort of dial into find friends every player is able to kind of create um parts of the adventure for other people we're using the latest technology so that server side we're able to generate adventures for people and we want to create this kind of fantasy world where Everybody can just make friends, go on adventures, look at each other's creations, play each other's creations, and a game that just goes on into the future um, for many, many, many years. Yeah. Does um, all right. So, 
what would you compare it to that's currently out now? So it's kind of a mashup between um, sort of massively multiplayer online games like your sort of World of Warcraft and um, Guild Wars and stuff like that, um, combined with something like Minecraft or Trove or something where like that. Where you're building. Where you're able to build and, and you're able to do UGC and things like that. And area. a lot of um, sort of the adventuring elements of things like Zelda, where you kind of like have, have those very nicely crafted stories, adventures. Um, which is a little less kind of hardcore fantasy to World yeah. of Warcraft. We're kind of like a little bit more open, a bit more Disney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, I mean, it's it's very fitting that sort of 30 years after we started making games, we're actually creating what we'd like to think is the ultimate cartoon adventure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of where we started with Dizzy, it's like... Th those sort of ideas that we've done, we're kind of doing now, but in such a, a massive way, yeah, um, way beyond what we could have ever imagined could would be possible. Yeah, I mean, I still to this day it's staggering what is possible. I mean, the fact that players anywhere in the world can dial into this game, play with each other, whether they're somebody in Australia playing against somebody in the UK, playing with another guy in Canada, and you're actually going on an, an adventure together which is generated down for the server and you're all seeing each other and playing together and chatting together. And it's like, that is quite and amazing. Yeah, and, you, and it looks spectacular. It looks like a Disney movie. I mean, even, even a couple of years ago when we just started the project, we were thinking, well, when you're playing, you're going to end up playing on instances which are sort of local. So the UK people will only ever play with UK people because you'd start to get lag and all sorts of problems. But actually, the Internet's pretty powerful nowadays. It's like it's amazing that people can be the other side of the world and you wouldn't know it. In fact, this Skype call is almost proving that. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you're, you're playing a video game um, with people from all around the world and there's no lag. There's no issues. Um, people are. Yeah, there's people here who are doing a phenomenal job. I was just going to say, we have an amazingly talented group of people here um, at Radiant Worlds, and we can't take the credit for it. We really can't. No. This is a, a massive team team effort. And, of course, there's Smilegate um, behind this who have shown uh, so much faith in us to actually produce this for them um, and given us so much freedom. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic time for us. And one of the things that we're able to do as well is we're creating the entire game here it's like ev everything that is created about the game all the server architecture and all the analytics and the g game engine and, and all and the graphics and everything it's a hundred percent here i'm kind of looking across the dev team uh, so, so you haven't uh, outsourced any of any of the development no, we decided not to no, no. no we used to i mean um back in blitz but it's um, games days when we were working on uh, sort of epic mickeys and things. You would get tons and tons of subcontractors working on creating big levels and all the animations and the cutscenes and stuff. And we've decided, no, this time round we're going to do this ourselves in the office here. Um, but everything is is component based. Um, I mean, there's a lot of programmers, um, but with the likes of your kind of big console games like um, Epic Mickey 2, which we produced. Uh, everything was bespoke and there were just so many different models and so much layout and all this for the levels and everything. Whereas what uh, the way Sky Saga works is everything is lots of little components and the code all adding those components together, whether it be armor pieces or character pieces or or levels. I mean, all the levels are procedurally generated from from all the different voxels um, and then all the different elements on top of the of on top of the world. So we just create all the elements and then it's either the players are putting it together or the, the programming 
it's proceed regenerating and putting it all so together. It's a pretty complex thing, and we decided to keep everything in house. Um, but it's given us uh, incredible control over yeah, everything. Absolutely. Um, because I mean, other other big games are generally made up of huge levels and big cutscenes and stuff like that because it's easy to subcontract, but it's it's difficult to finesse. Uh, well, mm. with, with money, the like the likes of Ubisoft and EA and stuff, they finesse incredible. As well. <laughs> they, yeah, I mean, they do incredible levels and then everything. But you know the formula. They are sticking to a formula that works, whereas we're trying to create something which is... Which grows. Which, which grows and is a, is a little bit different from other things. And it's, so we want to be able it's to... It's kind of a living game. Um, and some of... Some of what is kind of the life of it is what we will be producing, but a lot of it we're hoping is what the community produce, and it is quite amazing what the community can produce. Um, and what we've been able to enable is the fact that when somebody, by playing and creating, does something amazing, all the other players can easily see it and access it, which again was one of the part of the elevator pitch is the fact that anything that anybody makes, all other players have access to instantly and easily as part of the game flow. Is there a place uh, where, if somebody wants to follow the news related to the project, where they can go? Yeah, skysaga.com. Skysaga.com, it's free to download from that site. And, um, and you can become an alpha player now. Oh, um, we basically just queue them up, and then every now and then we, we release a bunch of people into the game to, to, to test. Well, yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll sign up right after we're done. Yeah. Okay. Well, so can everyone else. Yeah. Um, you may have to wait a few days, a few weeks um, to get in. Um, but but the good news is, it's free and get to play it, get to find out about it, and, and then automatically and watch it grow and watch it grow and help us grow it because it is this is a community game. I mean, that's one of the big things about this game is we want it to be a game that the community improve by by their presence and by their creativity. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you've given me an hour, and I appreciate it. Uh, I have one more question, and this is the question that uh, I think is a lot on a lot of people's minds. When 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 this current project is done, when Sky Saga is out, it's immensely successful. You've made a pile of money, and do you think there will ever be a chance of you guys actually creating one more busy game for the ages? You say when this game is done. First off. Games have a living and breathing thing nowadays. So, can I ask you a question? When do you think World of Warcraft or League of Legends or Facebook or Facebook is done? When, when do you stops think stops making that's money? That's when it's done. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. We're we're aiming not to get to that situation. Sure, we're aiming sure. to be the sort of the Facebook sort of get game fantasy. If you want to play a fantasy world, cartoony adventure with your friends, with your friends, and you want to be creative. Sky Saga, and we don't see that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, that aspiration of players will ever change. And we, we might get that wrong, we, we, but we believe it. We've had so many creative brainstorms, and we're just thinking of so many cool ideas which fit within this thing. I often wonder if you were sort of like making a, a racer or a shooter, apart from going to lift different locations, you kind of go kind of running out of ideas of, mm -hmm. of like what more to put in the next shooter or the next racer but we can draw different tracks of different places in the world or set it in different time zones uh, <laughs> i think we know which but, game but we're talking about there no but, but a fantasy world but we're in a fantasy world where anything's possible yeah mm -hmm. and we've had some very very cool ideas and you're thinking 
that isn't going to get yeah. in the next two or four years, is it? That's like, it's cool, but... But it will get there eventually. <laughs> we're, we're hoping that it will carry on for, for many, many years. So, then back to... Um, Dizzy, the, the question. The, the question, Dizzy. If we can create this absolutely amazing fantasy adventure, the ultimate cartoon, then anything else will pale into insignificance, wouldn't it? We are very fond of our memories of, of Dizzy, and um, we're very fond. Uh, we love the fact that people remember it favorably. But to go back to it, uh, we did try to reboot it back in the PlayStation 2 days with Codemasters. Uh, there's a nice demo out on YouTube of a pitch that we made to them, of sort of like bringing it into a 3D world and stuff. Um, but we said at that point, it's kind of a couple of million dollars like title because we've got to make something that is a decent PlayStation 2 game. And competitive to other, other games. So if we were to now make Dizzy competitive with the kind of things we're working on on Skyside, <laughs> we're talking many millions. Um, and you're just thinking, you know what? But why? Maybe... Maybe it should but just why? be fondly remembered. Yeah. Um, there are times where you're thinking... Well, but we did release one last year, don't forget. Right. Yeah, Wonder that's, true. Dizzy. that's true. Yeah, it was written back in the early 90s. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so... We're, we're, we're pleased it's fondly remembered. And we're going to have to leave it. I mean, we did try to do a Kickstarter and sadly that failed. I mean, I think that was more the fact that we didn't really know how Kickstarter worked. So I think we learned a few lessons there. But we've decided, like... Just move on. We're creative. We're ambitious. We want to create this amazing fantasy world. We're going to play. We're going to focus on that. We're going to focus on that, and that's not dizzy. It's called Sky Saga. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I'm Andrew... still dizzy in the game, though. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, Andrew Phillip, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to pitch or plug before we say goodbye? No, we. Um, although people in America may not know Dizzy and our history so much, um, we're really hoping that people will love the book. And and I don't think anybody's going to be disappointed when they see the book. And even if they don't know our full history, it's we think it's a great story. Um, and we think it's it's captured really well. It's although it's our story, the way it's been. It's the captured, birth of video games. It kind of is the birth of video games from a UK perspective. Um, and it, it, it's a fantastic read, and I hope lots of people get to see it and read it. Um, and I'm not saying this from a sales point of view. We make nothing from it. I'm just thinking that people would love it. I, I genuinely think it's, it makes a great read, especially if you love your retro video games. Um, and apart from that, people can go and play Sky Saga. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go and register at skysaga.com. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Well, thank you very much again, and uh, you all have a good evening. Thank okay, you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.